Welcome to Beers, Business, and Balls, presented by House Enterprise and brought to you by Manscaped. What guy wouldn't want the right tools for the job? Head over to manscaped.com slash house or use the code house at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your order just in time for Christmas too. This is episode 68 of Beers, Business, and Balls. He's Will and I'm Jake. We're recording this at 5.15 on a Tuesday and it is pitch black and let me go on record. I hate everything about it. Uh, there was our Senator where his constituent Sheldon Whitehouse, who got into some hot water a couple months ago for spending his time at a, a beach club that has some membership restrictions. He, the one thing he's good for is putting some legislation on the table to end daylight savings time. And I have never rallied around any political cause more than that it's literally i mean it's it's so dumb i I forgot which state it is i think it's arizona they don't abide by daylight savings and no one's giving them any hard time it's like what are we doing here there's no reason that i wake up and it's dark and i before i even finish work it's dark like it's just it's tomfoolery we're not in a time of war we're not conserving energy it's it is just ridiculous it's unfair it's dumb and yeah it should not be pitch black at 5 p.m in new england let alone majority of the east coast and what sheldon whitehouse did was he put out a plan he's like listen lower crime rates you know the less criminals have in the dark the less crime there's going to be in rhode island which you know it's a little bit of a stretch yeah he's reaching he's reaching for air right there but i'm reaching i'm like dude it's you know you're what if it gets dark at six instead of five? You're gonna have like less people committing crimes at three a.m. I don't know about that. I man. don't know. I mean, either way, we got to move on from this. We do have to move on from this very silly tradition. Um, we have an excellent guest though today. It is Jim McCune from the Craft Beer Marketing Awards. Honestly, this was something that I've been a little bit familiar with, but not. Uh, you know, I, I just knew it existed basically. So Jim comes on, uh, we have a nice long conversation with him about the inception of the craft beer marketing awards. Um, for those of you in the craft beer community, you definitely know about it. Uh, A lot of breweries enter their can art, their marketing, um, their podcasts, which we will be taking a whirl at hopefully, um, in addition to plenty of other categories. So let's hop right into it. Here is Jim McCune from the craft beer marketing awards all right everybody with us this week we have one of the co-founders of the craft beer marketing awards jim McCune joins the show um and we're as we we're talking before we hopped on the podcast i mean this is one of the first guests we've had in the craft beer world that focuses more on the artistic side i mean everyone loves the the cans and the tap room designs and Jim is developing and has created an incredible award system to recognize breweries and beers uh, with that artistic ability. So the CBMAs were developed to recognize and award the very best marketing in the brewing industry across the world. Breweries, their agencies, artists, and marketing partners are invited to enter their top work with over 30 categories recognizing all aspects of beer-related marketing. Jim, welcome to the podcast and how are you? Thank you guys. Yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, everything you said was true. <laughs> um, yeah, as the story goes, uh, my partner and I at, at work, Jackie, uh, we've been in the craft beer marketing um, side of it for a long time. 
And through the years, we had been to so many of the beer tasting competitions. And we were like sitting there one day and say, what are they going to recognize like the other part of it, like beyond the liquid, the, all the folks that are creating the branding and the packaging and selling the beer. So we ran back to our desk and Googled it. We had some great work that we wanted to enter that year. And we could not believe that it just didn't exist. So that was like 2019. And we decided to put together the Craft Beer Marketing Awards as the first ever in the world. And uh, we built the website and the, um, the back end that does the judging part of it. And we were off to the races and we did so well that first year that we decided in our second year to go global. And we just kick-started our third year um, in September. So we cannot believe we're in year three now of this competition. Three years in, that's awesome. And we'll definitely get into the inception and the creation and you know what these awards entail. Um, but let's take a little backtrack and start with you. Uh, from Long Island, we got a strong Islander here, and you're an artist by trade. You went to uh, the New York Institute of Technology for Advertising Marketing. Um, yes. So, you know, going back a few years, you know, why NYIT and what was your end goal um, for attending this school? I was always drawing, like, even since I was like a little kid, I always, I guess, wanted to be an artist. Uh, my parents were like, you'll never make it as an artist. You know, you'll be out there trying to sell your paintings on the streets. You really should take that creativity and try to do something, you know, more, um, more deep with it. So I started to look into advertising and marketing and really found it interesting. And uh, I know it's a long time ago, but I graduated high school in 1990. And when I started looking for colleges, New York Institute of Technology, even though it's one of the most expensive schools in the country, they were the only one with a real life ad agency. So that if you got accepted into this program, you were as like basically a teenager working in a real life ad agency with real clients. And um, so yeah, that was my uh, four years of college there. And it's a cool school because you would do two years um, in three different campuses. So I did two years in Central Islip and two years in Westbury. And then the final two years uh, for your master's is in Manhattan. So that, that was really exciting. So after that, Jim, some real world experience, you can call it. I say real world as if the beer industry is not the real world now, but um, you know, you had to go out and do a lot of those different projects, right? You know, uh, a lot of it as a graphic artist, uh, you work at TN, you, you worked at TNT by FedEx, uh, you know, professor at your alma mater too. What were some of those learnings from early on in your career before uh, you got into the beer world? And um, you know, what, what are some of the things that stick out? Well, the one thing is I got very, very good at what I did. And um, as a young person to be so well adapted to the programs and the creative side of things, I really, um, I got working right out of college. So I, I think I was literally looking for a job for a week. I saw this incredible ad. I couldn't even believe it was true. It basically said, do you want to work in Hollywood? Um, but from Westbury, Long Island. So I went on this interview and I met this incredible woman who owned this business and she wasn't lying. I worked there for 17 years working on all of Hollywood projects. So I got to design like the UFC logo and WWE and Playboy and Universal Studios. And it was amazing. It was like some of the best years of my life. But the funny part was all those years I was working over there at Team Services on the side, 
I was working for my two buddies brewery and that was Blue Point Brewing. And uh, back then, I guess that was 1997. There was only like 400 breweries in the entire country. And um, I remember my buddies giving me this plan and saying, take it to your college professor and see what they say. And I'll never forget. I was like, oh, here's their note. It said, tell your friends, don't do this. This is a stupid <laughs> business. Who wants to open up a brewery? They obviously didn't take that advice. They became the 32nd largest brewery in the country. Um, and they were one of the first ones to get purchased by AB InBev. And uh, I guess that's when I saw the writing on the wall, like all this awesome Hollywood work that I had done. Everybody wanted to see just the beer stuff I had done. So uh, the famous call to my mom and I said, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to get into the craft beer world full time. <laughs> she thought I was crazy, but that's that's really where the career in craft beer started full time. And that was uh, almost nine years ago now. I mean, absolutely. Like Blue Point is one of our favorite breweries. I mean, I grew up from Long Island, so very familiar oh, with awesome. that. Big, uh, big fan of the Blue Point Toasted Lager. Um, so, I mean, it's well distributed everywhere as well. And you answered our question on, you know, how you got into that beer world. Uh, you know, when that opportunity arose and, you know, you were obviously doing both, you know, from here to there, and then you obviously transitioned into Blue Point full-time, you know, what was the day-to-day -day like with this role? And, you know, tell us what you were doing at Blue Point. I never worked for Blue Point uh, directly. They were always just a client. Um, in the first 15 years before they got purchased, I think we had created uh, 32 brands for them. I had done everything almost exclusively, just me, websites, all the packaging logos you've ever seen from the company. Um, when they got purchased, obviously things had changed. And unfortunately it was right when I started my division, I was doing all this work for all these years and it just stopped at that moment. But what that did for me is uh, before I even had my client, they were gone. So I just started to do what I do. I marketed myself. Uh, I showed all the great work I had done for Blue Point, And all of a sudden I started getting work from breweries all over the country. And, you know, so when, well, first of all, before we go any further, we need to know, are you a Yankee fan? I do not watch any sports. <sighs> so is that all baseball right. you're talking about? <laughs> you got the pinstripe pilsner for blue point so that's that's the reason yeah. we asked because blue point is that was i think the first beer i've ever had at yankee stadium was either a pinstripe pilsner or a toasted lager from blue point it was yeah. i think the first two beers i had and i exclusively drank when i turned 21 there was blue point's always blue point. been way ahead and they've always been very progressive in those senses and yeah so I guess for now, I'd be a Yankee fan with you guys. <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll take that. So that being said, you know, I'm sure you had some favorites from Blue Point. Um, what were some of the things that, you know, uh, stuck out for beer wise that you just really enjoy drinking or, uh, you know, heard some really good feedback on? You know, I had done so much work for them and it was just a labor of love at the time. And they would just leave me cases of beer and it was, a you know, a great, uh, program we had going there for years but I think I really I personally became famous with the optical illusion art and I'm a big fan of all like you know the mystery stuff and Illuminati and they gave me free reign I remember him saying I was like what do you want They're like do whatever you want I'm like whatever I want whatever <laughs> you want 
And I said, all right, I guess I'll just use the Illuminati eye and highly psychedelic background. And it became famous. I mean, when you pair great artwork with great beer, that's, that's when uh, good stuff happens. And that's really pretty much, you know, where the CBMAs is born from. And this is something, Jim, that we've talked about with other brewers too. It's, you, you know, right now you really see that freedom with, you know, uh, the graphic design and the art, you know, the brewers really aren't concerned with it. They say, you know, we trust you, right? You know what the art is like. It wasn't always the case back then. So just how was that freedom for you? I mean, that, that must've said a lot about what you were getting into and that, that opportunity that arose to just basically have total creative freedom over what you were undertaking. Yeah. I mean, I was such a professional because I came from the Hollywood world. I had million dollar budgets so I came from a world where I always had the money to get whatever I wanted to get done, done. So I was always pushing the envelope, uh, pun intended, with every piece of packaging that we did. We used to create interactive CD-ROMs that would come in the mail and you put them in your computer and they would automatically open and start this whole presentation. Um, I think I was really cross-trained and cross-pollinated at an early age with all of that incredible marketing experience that when I came to this tiny little brewery and said, well, yeah, every brewery in the country just has a one color case box, but why can't we do a full color? And why can't we paint the whole box? Well, no one's ever done it. Well, we are. So every project that I did with Bluepoint back then, they afforded me the confidence to change the game. And when you saw Bluepoint's packaging back there in the early 90s, late 90s, it was unlike any other packaging you've ever seen. Even Budweiser, which is beautiful and Coors, they all had this very simple, nice look. But here comes this full painted thing, handcrafted in you know Long Island, Long Island's number one brewery. You know, full flavor uh, awards. Whoever saw awards on a beer, so I think in those regards, they uh, they really helped launch uh, where I was going with all this. So now we're, you know, more into present time, 2019, you have this immense resume of graphic design and illustration and marketing and advertising. And now you have some experience in the craft beer world. You put them together, you find the mesh. Where did this, you know, you alluded to it in the beginning, but you had the conversation with your coworker, uh, Jackie, um, over at the EGC group. But where did this conversation arise when you're like, hey, we really need to, you know, award these people on their marketing and on their can designs and all the, you know, art behind beer. Yeah. It's funny. Cause they always say, um, necessity is well, what are, what's the saying in <laughs> now I'll get screwed up. You better edit this. <laughs> um, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think at the time we really wanted to be recognized for this amazing work all this incredible art and design and marketing that we were doing for these breweries. And when you really think about it, look at our categories. That was one of the hardest things about building the CBMAs is what does craft beer marketing encompass? And if you look now, I think we're almost 40 categories. You have your cans and your bottles and you have your tap rooms and your tap handles and your website and your photography and social media and merchandise and storytelling and video content. And it goes on and on. I mean, this year we had to add so many new categories, human rights, uh, collaborations, beer murals, um, 
I, I think it's just amazing. But and, yeah, what's changed, I would say, is, I mean, there's 8,000 breweries now. When I started, there was only 400. So just in this, you know, 15-year, you know, 18-year career, we went from 400 breweries to 8,000, and there's 1,200 more coming. So it's a lot of work. So let's talk about what the logistics process looks like. You know, what would make someone... You know, what does someone gain by applying to the CBMAs and, you know, what's the process look like from a judging perspective? What are you guys looking at? Um, you know, kind of give us that process and uh, discuss a little bit about, you know, what the CBMA, you know, actually looks like from a, you know, applying standpoint, from a judging standpoint, from getting the award. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if you visit craftbeermarketingawards.com, we have a old school shootout competition. It's all based on visual critiquing. We had uh, 320 judges last year. Uh, looks like we'll have over 500 judges this year. These judges are all professionals um, in the industry, whether it's brewing or marketing or beyond. They're located all around the world. And, and they're the ones who are going to be, um, you know, one by one reading the entry and putting a numeric uh, rank to it. And basically whoever enters and gets the highest ranking, they get awarded a crushy. Um, so yeah, if you just visit craftbeermarketingawards.com, click on category, um, peruse the, um, the various categories that you think you might wanna enter, figure out what your top work is, uh, click the button to enter, and then it just navigates you through a few steps to enter the work and the images and the story behind it. And going back to, you know, you were talking about the judges. I mean, when we looked on the website uh, prior to this interview, I mean, your panel of judges is quite the community of beer lovers. I mean, we're talking about all the major, you know, well-known craft breweries, their vice presidents, their brand managers, their brewers, uh, you have art directors, you have uh, beer attorneys, which is something, you know, which is kind of not many people understand that science behind the scientists. Yeah. I mean, celebrities, podcast hosts, everything. It's like, where did you accumulate this group of people? And how did you, you know, build this community to help, you know, promote and gain exposure for the CBMAs? Yeah, I mean, a couple of them are just good friends. Uh, Ralph Steadman is one of the most famous artists in the history of the world. And we could save that story of how I met him for another podcast, but you know, all I had to do was tell him what we were doing and you know, volunteer a few hours of their time. And they're all about it because they're in essence supporting their own industry. You know, and as famous as Stedman is, he's also the designer of Flying Dog Beer. So uh, you know, very much a part of the industry. And I thought it would be critical to have Zane Lamprey involved you know, he's a huge beer celebrity, comedian, and uh, television personality. And he honestly is one of the reasons I got into beer. He had a show on TV some years ago uh, called Three Sheets. And I thought it was one of the most endearing and funny and interesting shows where he just traveled the world, you know, meeting interesting people and tasting beer. And I said, oh, I'd like to do that. Uh, so all I did was call him and let him know who I was. And he was like, yeah, I'm down. And that's how it goes. Every single one of those people, John Contino is a good friend, 
another one of the most famous artists in the world. And they're looking at your artwork, they're critiquing it, they're giving you feedback. And that just to put a little button on the question that you asked, this whole operation and awards uh, competition is based on recognizing and celebrating those people involved. So um, if you visit the site and you click on menu and drop that down to news, you'll see how serious we are about promoting our winners. Um, and they've been on the local news, they get media coverage and all the big outlets. So that's really what we're doing is we're amplifying their message um, and letting people know this person over here did that awesome work and be inspired by it. And it Jim, wouldn't be a, uh, yeah. It wouldn't be a badass award ceremony without a badass trophy. And, uh, you know, no, no surprise because of your, you know, amazing background and resume and, you know, in, in the arts, you have this trophy, the crushies, you know, honor, honoring the best beer marketing and designs across the world. But it, it quite literally is a golden or platinum hand crushing a beer can. Yeah. Um, so definitely wanted to highlight that. And we're going to throw images, you know, when we do the, uh, the blog cover and the uh, podcast cover that uh, it's a pretty cool oh, award. Thank you. I mean, we knew that was super important, especially to breweries. We wanted to give them something very prestigious, something to be really proud of. And we decided to work with the top um, trophy manufacturer in the country, really right here in Manhattan. Uh, they create the MTV Moon Man and the, M and the Emmy Award. So uh, same company making our Crushy Award and when you win that and you get that in the mail, you cannot believe how heavy uh, that award is. So it's the real deal. And uh, it's definitely cool. It's a heavily tattooed arm crushing a can, just symbolic of how uh, breweries are crushing it. I love it. Um, nothing like hardware, that's for sure. Everybody loves it. <laughs> um, Jim, you alluded to this in a couple of different questions, right? But the way people consume content and the way that they digest information has changed drastically over the years. That's no secret from a guy in marketing, in design and things like that. Um, that being said, I wanna talk about the challenges and maybe opportunities of the past couple of years. Obviously COVID changed everything for brewers. It changed everything for, um, you know, a lot of people in the beer industry too. So, you know, even growing, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have dampered the success that you guys have had for sure. I, I'd argue that it almost grew uh, your opportunity. So talk to us about COVID. You know, what were some of the challenges that you might have faced? Um, how are some of the ways that you navigated that content wise and uh, things of that nature? Yeah, definitely. Uh, typical my luck. We go and launch this. I'm so excited. We're going to have a ceremony and it's March 14th and it's pandemic. Um, the great part is the pandemic itself doesn't affect the competition. Um, the only way I saw it maybe affect a little way in a very real way was some of our judges actually got sick. So um, yeah, we navigated through that. It was a real bummer when we found out that the uh, Craft Brewers Conference out in San Antonio was being canceled because with that, we lost our awesome red carpet interactive booth that we were gonna have. And we also lost our live award ceremony so uh, what we did was pivot. We did a live award ceremony on Zoom and it was hilarious and I was nervous and it was funny and uh, definitely got better for the second year. But uh, we just confirmed that uh, this year, the 2022 CBMAs will have their first live award ceremony out in uh, Minnesota 
uh, during CBC week. So we're uh, very happy about that finally, three years in the making. I think there's another part of that question, right? That was pretty much it. You know, it's a, it's a good point. So that being said, you know, we talked a little bit about this too, but you know, 2021, obviously you've got that plan in place, but what's the future look like when you look out and say, this is what I want the CBMAs to be, or this is what we've kind of bought in for our vision. Where do you envision this going? Another great question. And I actually now remember the last part of the question, the, the flip side of what had happened, as you guys know, is breweries across the country got the opportunity to start selling packaging um, directly to the consumer, also even delivering it uh, locally. So what that did was just uh, set a fire under packaged goods. So of course, packaged goods need to be branded and designed, and they could also be entered into the CBMAs. So I think what happened during our second year was this massive new influx of packaged goods uh, with a lot of breweries maybe doing it for the first time uh, because they were forced to um, with no draft going on at the time. So I think that definitely helped um, just sort of infuse a little more of the entries in the can design category, which definitely was clearly our um, hottest category. Um, yeah, and as far as where we're going with it, we decided last year that uh, just because it was so uh, symbiotic with the industry, we now accept hard seltzer, we also accept mead and cider. And that was very exciting for a lot of those brands that now can recognize and celebrate their folks as well. Now, obviously, you know, we're going to call you the expert. Like you have probably seen hundreds and hundreds and thousands of designs and cans and bottles. And then of course, I mean, you mentioned how it's going globally, but you know, one thing we've talked about with a lot of brewers and just, you know, friends of ours as well, it's like people that don't understand beer and not necessarily understand like, you know, types of beer, but like, you know, oh, that's Treehouse, that's the number one. And, you know, Blue Point's number one in Long Island, but people see the beer cans they, if they don't know beer, they look what looks nice. They grab it, they take it home and like good beer or bad beer, that's what they're basing it off of. You know, in terms of, you know, your perspective, what are some of the trends, whether it's marketing or best practices that have you seen breweries do really well in um, with their artwork, their illustrations and everything? Uh, yeah, it's, I, it's definitely changed over time. Uh, when I was young, you used to see beer. It was a white can that said beer across it. And in my own lifetime, I've seen the incredible evolution of beer packaging. And when you walk into a beer distributor today, it's incredible. There's thousands and thousands of brands with a heavy investment in creative. Um, so I always told my clients, you know, when that person opens up that cooler door, out of all the beers they could buy, like if they reach in and grab yours, that's probably because I did great artwork. If they come back and buy your beer again, that's because you make great beer. So, I, you know, the trends over the years, I think, and it's advice I give my own clients, a lot of breweries got real crazy with their art and they just let it get awry over time where maybe one artist did one and another artist did another and maybe they had their logo on it or maybe they had ABV. Um, all my designs, I'm a, I'm a stickler for homogeny between 
the packaging. So it doesn't matter if it's your IPA over here or your sour over here, you're instantly going to know well, whose brewery that is. Uh, so that is the one thing that I'm starting to see is people creating what we call shelf sets and investing in creating um, artwork and design and branding that links um, the brewery. And I think what you'll start to see is the flip side of what happened for many years. I'm sure you've seen it. Used to walk in and see uh, Blue Point. Every single beer they made, summer, toasted, optical, all in one massive display. Over the years, because of how much competition there is and how many breweries are selling their SKUs in one distributor, a lot of them decided, and we call it the winification of beer. It's what happened in the wine industry back in uh, like the 80s. There was so many different kinds. The only way you could sell them was to um, categorize them by style. So now you would have a Blue Point IPA right next to a Lagunitas and right next to this one and that one. So you'd have all the IPAs shooting it out. And um, I do see the brands that started to you know, do the homogeny across the packaging um, are starting to get shelf sets again. And I mean, you and I know as a customer, if you walk in and see 50 different brands from 50 different breweries versus seeing 50 different brands from one brewery, you know, chances are they're going to pick you. Mm -hmm. And one thing we're noticing, you know, in Rhode, we're, we're based in Rhode Island now, but one thing we're starting to see are, you know, certain breweries are now taking a flagship beer or not even a flagship, one of their newer beers and kind of separating it from its brand and making it its own. You know, one example we have is uh, Graysale to brewery in Rhode Island. They have the Rise IPA and that is its own kind of entity. And same with uh, Sons of Liberty and uh, what is it? Chair, chair to beer, chairlift? Ooh, chair to lager. Yep. Yeah, and they kind of like separate it on its own with its own separate marketing, but everyone knows, oh yeah, that's a Graysale, that's a Sons of Liberty, but it's, it's, it's called its own beer. So that's a, uh, you know, the marketing world in beer, it's, it's, it's crazy. People don't realize it when they're just grabbing beers, but it's such a science and, uh, you know, math equation behind it. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, it's, it's fierce competition now. So uh, that's one of the coolest parts about CBMAs. I always, you know, say, wow, stuff I make is really great, but just click on menu and drop it down to the uh, winner's galleries and look at the actual um, winning breweries and the stuff that they're doing, it's incredible. I mean, they are breaking every mold that you could think of. So that that part is exciting. And I definitely, uh, I definitely think people should check that out. It's very inspiring. Yeah, so off that note too, you know, obviously our listeners can go find, uh, you know, some of the past winners on the website, but is there anything that sticks out? Maybe even not an award winner, but Anything that sticks out on the design side that you really liked? Is there a favorite design that sticks out of anything that you've worked with over your career? Ooh, me, my own personal? Whichever, you know, maybe it's something you made, maybe it's something you saw, could be anything. And this is probably like asking to pick your favorite kid, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Um, man. I would say like, you know, one, one part that I always love in my career is doing a good job for a brewery for many years um, and they make great beer and then seeing the su success that happens 
Will, I know you were a Long Islander. I don't know if you're familiar with like the Glen Cove area. Mm -hmm. One of my clients is Garvey's Point Brewery. Okay, yeah. And um, they were just a little tiny brewery. They make amazing beer. I've been helping them out with their packaging, some of their marketing, you know, over, I think they've only been around for like five years. And they're now under construction for one of the biggest breweries on the island. So, and it'll have a restaurant. So I think that's always cool when you see something that you've built and then it turns into like something that's even bigger than you ever thought. That's why I do what I do. And the free beer. <laughs> and the free beer indeed. Um, you know, closing out the show, uh, you have definitely created a career in your passions. You know, you kind of going back to that original story of like, you know, you, you love the art and you made an opportunity out of that to make it something successful and lucrative and, and enjoyable. But what advice do you have to people that either have two passions that aren't, aren't necessarily, you know, the status quo and they're trying to, you know, make something out of it? What, are the, what advice do you have to people that, you know, want to chase this dream that you, uh, you so successfully did? You know, it might sound cliche. My kids will probably be covering their ears in another room, but like, be true to yourself and, I think that's what I've always done. I've always seeked out the things that I'm interested in. And, you know, I mentioned I worked in Hollywood for many years and it was awesome, but there's also like a ruthless side to it. And then I would be doing a little bit of work in the craft brewery side. And I couldn't believe the camaraderie between breweries and what great people that were actually in the industry things that I would never see in my other industry where if one brewery ran out of cups, another brewery would run over and lend them theirs. Like that's, I knew really quickly, that's where I wanted to be. So I did everything in my power to uh, immerse myself full-time in the craft beer industry. And I still am every day. I wake up every single day. I work all day and all night at beer. Um, the CBMAs is my side hustle. Um, and it's just something that gives me all the joy in the world uh, to see, you know, this guy who just won and this girl who just won and to see that they're on the local news, like so happy and getting the credit they deserve. Well, this has been great. Uh, Jim McCune, go to craftbeermarketingawards.com. There's a bunch of good stuff uh, on there. You can honestly spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes just poking through. Uh, all the good content there. But Jim, thanks so much. It's been great uh, to close out. Where can our listeners find you guys besides the website and engage with your content uh, that you're up to? Yeah, check us out, craftbeermarketingawards.com. All of our social media links are there. We also have Marketing on Tap podcast. We're only on episode 18, so we're getting better with each one. I recently heard we were uh, number 67 best marketing podcast in Croatia. So every day we get better. <laughs> <laughs> awesome well jim thank you so much we're looking forward to uh you know seeing all the entries and uh you know we'll hopefully grab a beer in long island one day soon and uh good luck with everything we'll talk to you soon i look forward to it thank you guys and that was just jim kuhn craft beer marketing awards co-founder um like we mentioned in the interview one of the first people we've talked to in the craft beer world that it wasn't necessarily about the beer. And I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years. It's like, how many beers have we grabbed just because of the can art? You know, before we're active users and untapped and looking and stuff, if you're 
in a pinch, you're like, oh shit, this looks good. Even though you only see the outside and not the inside. And, uh, you know, the awards that he's created with his team, I mean, it is, it's global now. It's a global award, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Their list of judges, I mean, you know, we, we consider ourselves craft beer influencers. There's some, there's some heavy hitters out there. And, uh, you know, it was great talking to him. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll get our hands on a crushy one day. And that would be pretty I cool. want a crushy so bad. They look so fresh. They look cool. Like, that is a hand. It's a fist crushing a can of beer it would look real good in the in the house enterprise headquarters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, some really good stuff go to craftbeermarketingawards.com uh crush it local crush it global complete compete now is the slogan uh if you have any interest in craft beer or you know someone that would be a good fit this is an excellent opportunity for them all right off to the business segment we go and we're back to crypto. And in other words, the sky is blue. There is a trial going on right now. And if you don't know about it, you've got to get on it. Basically, how Bitcoin came about was some guy who was anonymous. He used a pseudonym to create Bitcoin so that his identity would be protected. And now... All of a sudden, out of thin air, there are two guys that say they both invented Bitcoin. And now there's six, actually $66 billion in Bitcoin sitting around. I forget what the equation out in in Bitcoin that is. But it is sitting on the table. They both say it's theirs because they invented it. You and I were just talking about this before we hopped on to record this. I feel like this is a simple case. Like you have proof or you don't. But then again, Bitcoin's all about trusting the system. It's about community-based, you know, blockchain transactions where it's not validated by one person, it's validated by the community. So I, let me be the first to say, I don't know how to judge this case. Yeah, like, I, don't I don't know. know I mean, what the, the lawyer is going to have to do. I don't know what argument you make. Yeah, like, so it's start? like, Bitcoin's obviously been around for years and the name Satoshi Nakamoto is obviously that pseudonym that you referenced, but the inventor of Bitcoin. And that name has been, you know, discussed amongst Reddit, Wall Street Journal, you know, the entire spectrum. And it's like, it's either between Ira Kleiman or Craig Wright. Um, Those are the people that both claim that they invented Bitcoin. I'm curious to see if this is a Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Winklevoss situation where it's like they were with it, they were, you know, with each other together and then they split off and then one person did it because it's like, again, I understand the whole, you know, like you just said, it's, it's not about one person, it's a community, but someone has the receipts. Someone literally has to have the receipts of, I either created the website, created the blockchain, whatever like that. You don't just lose that. You don't just like, if you're starting something, whether it's a success or a failure, you have the receipts for everything. So I find this very, very hard to believe. And I'm curious to see what the prices are of Bitcoin at the moment, because again, you know, it's already in very much the public eye. It's already, you know, something that doesn't need to be in the hot seat. And now you're bringing it to, you know, negative publicity on it through a trial of like, who founded this, like, what will that do with the price? And looking today it's down less than a percent but that's 500 bucks so 
<laughs> yeah. But you say this whole thing about like somebody has the receipts. Do they? Like, I can't confidently answer that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, according to emails shown to the jury on Monday, Eric Kleiman alleges that his brother was solely responsible for mining the entire stash of Bitcoin. And now that's being questioned. Um, and he's accused the other guy of swindling that from his estate <laughs> through a combination of forgery and deceit. So like, is this a stolen valor? Is this a stolen property? I mean, this is just, this is just silly. And again, I don't understand Bitcoin to this day still. Right. I, yeah. We talk about Bitcoin every week and we still don't get it, but yeah. So it, so they form a partnership. They basically like, you know, have like a joint venture, like an LLC. They just mine Bitcoin all day. But I, I think we need to bring in a Bitcoin mining expert to talk about like how you actually like, like, what do you do when you sit and mine Bitcoin? Like, do you open like Safari and just like go to a website and just like let it fucking mine all day? Like, that's the question that like, we're just so, I wouldn't even say uneducated. I would just say far beyond the curve because the days of like, you know, just letting your server run and mine Bitcoin are not as popular anymore, but no, because just because it's so hard and because it's so expensive now. So it's like, I guess you have the, you have the track record from, from those early days, but I don't even know what that looks like. Like, that's just something that's so far beyond me that you have to go to a blockchain reader you have to go and see who mined what, but like, that's probably impossible given that these guys seem like computing experts. I mean, it's definitely a story to tell. And it's like, you know, we talk about just like the daily price. It's down over 10,000, uh, almost 10,000 bucks for the week. So just like through fluctuation, but again, yeah, the mining days are, you know, somewhat, somewhat over. I mean, it's still very much present. Uh, it's now just one of the biggest traded non-tangible. It's it, it, you can't call it a stock, but it's the most one of the most traded things ever right now, where people are just constantly buying and constantly selling. And yeah, I'm just still like internally trying to figure out. It's like how does someone not have proof that they created this? All right, I don't know. I really don't know. And and the plot thickens. This guy Kleinman is dead. He died in April 2013. So this is where everything gets, you know, totally messed up because he like, said, she said right now, you know, you can sue on behalf of somebody, which is, I think what's happening with, with climate. It's this Ira Kleiman. So, you know, he's suing on behalf of his brother, but like, can the court just take his defense for what it is? I mean, the guy's dead. Yeah. Probably not. Like, you're telling me there's just like no writing in like a safe that said like, yo, I did this. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's probably in the blockchain. They're too like high tech for that. They're too high tech. This is so stupid. This is so <laughs> stupid. And I know it's not going away and I know we have to buy into it, but like it is just, fr and our next, our, you know, our next storyline is going to be obviously crypto related, but it's like, and I think uh, at least this next storyline, I think is something like cool that people are doing like, it has a value, right? But like, I am so lost in the whole like NFT space now where like people are literally buying like pictures of like pixelized monkeys and putting it as their Twitter profile. And it's like, I For own hundreds this. of thousands of dollars, mind you. Yeah, you know, like it just, it's so frustrating. I don't have the patience or the time for this. It's just annoying.
but and you mentioned the next storyline too we might as well move on so this is some nicholas cage type shit um crypto investors this group raising millions of dollars to buy a copy of the constitution at an auction first of all i did not know that there was a copy of the constitution available like a certified one There's, that's pretty cool yeah but Sotheby's is auctioning off a very rare and historic first edition printing of the U.S. Constitution, and the market says it's worth about 15 to 20 million bucks, and all these investors are pooling a bunch of what other than cryptocurrency to try to pry it out. They've raised almost 5 million to this point. This is one of those that I feel like this will have some pretty big significance, because, you know, auctions, what do you, when you think of auctions for me anyway, I think of very old style. I think of like, you know, someone signing a check that night, a rich person's giving cash if they've got it. Um, this is an industry that I did not think crypto would catch up to, but here we are because they're raising a bunch of ether, obviously traded on Ethereum to, to buy this. And here we are. It's it's infiltrated the auction world now. Yeah. So it came up, you know, I noticed it, it really hasn't broken like major headlines, which is kind of surprising. But I noticed earlier this week that all the people from Morning Brew changed their emojis from coffee cups to these scrolls. And I'm like, okay, you know, if you're in business Twitter, like anybody from Morning Brew, you're just constantly seeing coffee cup, coffee cup. But then like all of a sudden they all switch to these scrolls. So then I was looking into it. So there's 13 copies of the Constitution. The last time one has been on auction was 33 years ago. Um, and that was an official edition from the Constitutional Convention. Um, but it's pretty much either owned by private, private collectors or it's in you know, the museum. But the purpose of this group, um, the Constitution DOA, um, Decentralized Autonomous Government, oh, or sorry, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, um, they, their theory for this is they want to put the Constitution back into people's hands, kind of like going full circle with the whole history and stuff. Um, and I think just the way to do it right now is just to do through crypto because it's it's cute, it's buzzy, it's flashy and stuff. Oh, it's sexy, I mean, man. I, again, you know, they raised $5 million in, in, in crypto and $5 million in Ethereum. So it's like, clearly it's out there. Again, I don't know, you know, what this means and if they're going to win the auction, because again, you, you talked about the price. It can be anywhere from, you know, one and a half or 15 to 20 million. So like, they're obviously going to need a lot more. Um, and it does, again, it goes up on auction. Like it could be a complete bidding war and they might be tapped out at 20 million. Yeah. I, I'm not going to be surprised if they, so now here's a, a route. What if they, what if these people don't technically win, but because they're doing it in crypto, they win? Like that could be interesting for these judges or whoever runs an auction to say like, all right, now these people are doing crypto. We want to get some good PR. Of course, they'll never brand it as that, but that's just an interesting thought. That could open some lawsuits. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to see like what they do. Like their initial set is like, oh, everybody who you know, is a crypto bidder. If, if constitution DAO wins this bid, everyone who contributed money will have a fractional part of the text. So again, it's kind of like owning the Packers right now, right? The Packers actually this week are 
releasing 300,000 shares for the first time in like a decade. Yeah. It's something cool. I mean, the Packers are about to get $90 million, you know, from these shares and all you get is a certificate, but you get to say, I own part of the Packers. Like you have no say, you know, nothing. It's the same with this constitution. It's a piece of art, which I assume if these people are, you know, respectful or just, you know, courteous of the history, they put it in a Smithsonian say, Hey, you know, congratulations, you own part of this, but we're going to donate it to the Smithsonian. It has no value. It has no say. Yeah. That's what I, I'm looking that up now too. It's like, you know, it's a, it's just a common stock offering and you literally just buy it. You have no say and you just, you just own the Packers. You own a slice of the Packers. Kind of so, cool. I mean, I would do that. That's a pretty cool gift. Yeah. For some, how much are they going for? Uh, I think it's 300 bucks. That's a no-brainer. If like someone's a diehard Packers fan, be like, "Yeah, I actually am a part owner." Like that's sick. Yeah. I didn't they yeah. do. I thought they were gonna do something like maybe I'm just making this up, but I thought they were gonna do like their season ticket holders own the on the shares or something. Maybe they do already. I you can. I so like essentially, I was reading into it. You can't own more than 200 shares, and they talked about the last times that, that it goes like. And the line in the uh, on the website says like, oh, and that includes, you know, shares that we sold in 97 and 2011 or something, whatever years it was. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be like a, a true owner. Like, yes, they sell all of this stuff, but you have no say. Right. Um, but they're just generating a, a quick 90 mil. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty cool. So, well... We'll have to uh, to keep our eyes on who comes away with like. I bet you like there's going to be some Packers fans that are like, yeah, you know, I own the team. I'm going to start making some irrational decisions here, like on Twitter or some shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you know, tying it back in, it's like, all right, you're buying something that like, yes, it's part of history, and like you don't get anything out of it. You just get to have the bragging rights. Like these organizations should really start like you know creating something as like also a get in. Like yes, you get a certificate for the Packers thing, but it's like, okay, if I got two tickets and a signed Jersey from Aaron Rodgers or any, anybody, I'd be like, you know what? It's worth my $300 and that's it. And the same with this, you know, constitution. If I got a certificate that it said as I was a fractional owner of like an original copy of the constitution and I got to, you know, um, get like a private, like if, if it's in the Smithsonian, get like a private tour and like hear someone talk about it, you know what? That is worth X amount of dollars and that's a once in a lifetime experience and that's cool yeah i'm so like that's what like that's what's frustrating about NF nfts too right now it's like you know i i not to say i'm like materialistic but i need something tangible like for me it's like owning this digital art doesn't do it for me because not for fucking nothing and i know it's different and i know it's like you don't own it but i can go online and take a picture of it like if i you know, we're both sports fans. If I wanted a signed picture of Derek Jeter, I could fake everybody out and print one online and put it in a frame and say, yeah, I have a signed picture of Derek Jeter and no one will fucking question it except myself. So I, while we were doing this, I just, uh, I just put myself in line for, to purchase Packer stock. I just want to see, I'm not going to do it. I'm just I'd very, split, I'd split it with you. All right. BBB pod. Owns, I'd yeah, I'd split owns it. the Packers. <laughs> I'd be right next to the crushy. <laughs> so, 
So we're at, I, I am so, I'm fucked. I can't buy it. Like it's like has one of those line things. It doesn't even tell me what place I'm in the line. It just has me all the way in the back. So I don't know. Updates I just read the FAQ. They can't kick me out of line unless I say leave the line. Yeah. So once they email me, I have 10 minutes to, to buy stock, but that's a big if. I don't know. I don't know that I'm good. They're probably going to run out for me. Because <laughs> we just lie. We'll make that decision just, later. Yeah, I'm I'm in line. Updates to come. Um, what a loaded segment of business that ended up. Um, let's go into balls. Of course, balls presented by Manscaped. Presented That's, by Manscaped. Yeah. It's do we do we want to give them some more love? We'll give them some more love. It's Christmas time and. You know, what is the perfect gift for any man, woman, or child? It's Manscaped. It's <laughs> a child. Why not? They have good products. You know, they have good products. But yes, Manscaped.com. It's a proud partners of the beers, business, and balls, and house enterprise world. They have a ton of great products that are be perfect for gifts between the lawnmower 4.0, um, different ball deodorants, lotions, shaving creams, you name it. Um, their stuff is blowing up. I mean, you see advertisements all over it everywhere. People live and die by the products. Uh, we both use it, both big fans of it. I've used it on you know, my beard. It's No Shave November, kind of trimming up a little bit. Um, but they're super good. They're super convenient. They're light. It comes with a nice travel bag as well. Um, you can check out their whole line of products at, uh, at um, manscaped.com slash house. You get the 20% off and free shipping. Like we said, it's perfect Christmas gift, good stocking stuffer, however you want to do it. Um, get it while supplies last because the whole supply chain thing, which we didn't really talk about in the business segment, we'll save that for next week. Um, but go to manscaped.com slash house, get the 20% off and free shipping. Your balls will thank you later. All right, let's start with college basketball, which is here. We kicked it off last week formally, uh, College Hoops Digest, now a brand of house enterprise. And a lot of stuff went down to week one. Um, I had, I learned a few things and some news dropped as we're recording this as well, that Loyola Chicago, who has been a longtime contender, I say long time, like in the past couple of years uh, in the NCAA tournament is moving to the Atlantic 10. There's a lot of stuff. We'll start with that because that's the big news. Um, so Loyola has been, They've been this up and down team. They just had a coaching change. Porter Moser went to, I, I forget what team he's coaching now. I think, uh, is it somewhere? I can't believe this. He's, uh, he's at Oklahoma. That's where he is. Um, so Porter Moser took his team to a couple tournaments. He goes to Oklahoma and now the map is on like the, the, all the eyes are on Loyola Chicago basically. So to the A-10 they go, some good opponents in front of them. I like the move. I think it's huge for I think it's it's huge for Loyola and it's huge for the um for the A-10 as well. I mean, when is the last time an A-10 team has made the final four? Oh man, I don't know. Next year they can probably say Loyola Chicago in 2018. You know, it's like obviously they are a team that you know, has their highs and lows. You're going through the coaching change. They have that mascot of sister Jean. They have a good talented pool of players, you know, year over year, but 
you know, it, it, it raises the stakes in the, in the, in the conference. I mean, you know, it, it, it starts to widen that gap of, you know, teams like Fordham where it's like, okay, you have this new coach in, in Neptune, but it's like, shit, like our gap is now widening where like, there's more talent in the pool. It makes it more competitive, but I think it's great for the A-10 as a whole. Oh my God. I just looked it up. Do you have any guesses? The nineties? 1996 UMass. Yeah. So, and that's a whole coach was John Calipari. Really? That is nuts. I'm imagining this had Marcus Camby. Yeah. Marcus Camby was on this team. They went far. They were very good. But again, that was 20 over 20 years ago. It was a whole different 25 years ago. Yeah. College basketball was so much different. It's like there hasn't had that. And again, you know, the big dance is all about right place, right time, and who gets hot at the right time. But, you know, every year after year, Loyola Chicago has, you know, raised, turned some heads and raised some eyebrows. So I think it's a great move. Yeah, I think so, too. I think they'll compete nicely. Um, got the big players in the A-10, like St. Louis. Uh, Richmond's always good. VCU just lost, so that's pretty crazy. Um Obvious. Yeah, the Bonnies are probably the team to beat in the A-10 this year, of course, too. They, they're starting the season ranked. Uh, they look like they haven't skipped a beat. So, I mean, this is, the, this is I think, just about the best move they could have made. Um, it's one of those that I don't even know what conference Loyola's in. Like, I, I had no idea what conference they were in before. And the mid, the mid Valley or something? Would it... uh, oh, the MVC. It's the uh, Missouri Valley Conference. Missouri yeah. Valley. They were a charter member of the Horizon League back in the day, and then they switched over to MVC. It's like, what are you doing in an MVC where, like, you know, the best teams you're going to get? Well, Drake was good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to hate on Drake here. Um, well, that's like the conversation every year with Gonzaga. It's like, you know, they're at the top of the table at like a fucking easy conference. It's like, are they going to ever make the move? Right. Yeah. I don't know. So that's, I think this is a very good move for Loyola. Good for them. Uh, can't wait to see them beat up on URI every year. This will be good. Uh, what else? It's Gonzaga. I mean, they look like they haven't skipped a beat. I, we were talking, uh, you know, in our spaces the other night about, are the Zags going to be better? Are they going to be worse? They have things to figure out. I was a little worried about the Texas game. But they came out and they had a foot on the gas pedal. I think they played Texas at the right time because very new team. They're still trying to figure shit out. Um, you know, I, I think that there's an element of, yeah, you know, we played them at the, the right time because they were, you know, a little discombobulated. But Gonzaga's still learning how to play together too. Like this, is, this hasn't been a team that's, that's been like foot on the gas pedal these, you know, this whole offseason. They've had to work the kinks out this is a very yeah. new team too so good for them i know we were talking about on the twitter spaces though like about the wooden award we're like oh even though drew timmy's the favorite it's like there's a lot of mouths to feed on that team he is looking lights out i mean yes it's a couple games in yada 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 but i mean what did he drop 37 against texas yeah he's been scoring a bunch it was yeah uh... which is it's kind of funny because there was that one video in there one of their first games the fan was like Drew, Timmy, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you score 40 on Texas. And he goes, fuck no. And everyone's like, why did he say that? Because the NCAA, NCAA would have been on his ass if he said, oh yeah, I'll drop 40. So I knew, I think he could have easily dropped 40, but he stopped at 37, even though he said no in the video. <laughs> I really do. But I mean, Gonzaga, yeah, they're going to be the team to beat. Um, 
Duke, on the other hand, it's like we talked about this in the spaces, which, you know, is available on Spotify, Apple and Anchor if you want to, you know, tune back in. But we a lot of people had Duke in the final four with the Coach K tour. Um, now we're don't know what's going to happen to their star, um, you know, alleged DWI, DUI, just intoxication. Um, so that'll be something to keep an eye on. But yeah, it's it's Gonzaga's. Gonzaga's the uh, wagon right now. They're the team to beat. I think we got a huge matchup in Villanova versus UCLA early on too. Went to overtime. UCLA ended up coming out on top. Uh, it's one that Villanova's going to look back at and be like, holy shit, we played UCLA at the wrong time too because yeah. UCLA is picking right – they're picking up right where they left off. They stacked the schedules heavy. You know, Villanova, that was like – that's a – that's a tough matchup. I, I had UCLA winning it, but I also had Villanova covering five. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that that occurred, but UCLA, another good team. Kansas, good team. Michigan, that's your top four well, right Kansas, now. Kansas is a team that I had my eyes on week one. I said, you know, eh, probably a good test with Michigan State, but they kicked the shit out of them. You know, they, it's 87, 74. I don't really think that encapsulates how well Kansas played. I mean, they were lights out. This is going to be a, a scary Kansas team. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm, I'm super excited. I, our, our sources say when Michigan plays Seton Hall, maybe sprinkle a little in on the Pirates. I don't know. That's uh, we'll fact check us because this episode will be out after the game. So I don't know. Entertainment don't purposes know. only. I uh, but a lot of upsets. A lot of upsets this there week. Were, yes, there were some solid upsets. John Rothstein, though, we still need to get him unblocked on College Hoops Digest. <laughs> the epitome of brutality. I mean, it was it was all over. Uh, Marquette beat. Marquette beat Illinois, but again, they were out without Kofi Cock, uh, Kofi Coburn. Um, what were the other big ones? <laughs> Dartmouth beating Georgetown. How about that? Yeah, Dartmouth beating Georgetown. Who did uh, VCU lose to? They lost to Pride of the NEC, Wagner. Wagner, which right now is a wagon. Um, we were hoping for some upsets ourselves with Brian Bulldogs with URI and Clemson, unfortunately did not happen. Clemson was a little bit of a better game compared to the URI one, which was just embarrassing. I mean, shots weren't there. No Peter Kiss at the time. They're going through some growing pains as a program, but we're hoping the Bulldogs will get back on top. I'm looking at some other upsets here. Virginia loses a bye game to Navy. Louisville loses to Furman. Oh, that's that hurt coming out. Dartmouth beat Georgetown 69-60. That's embarrassing. That is so embarrassing. You're the reigning Big East champs, and then Dartmouth, who Brian is 2-0 against in these past two years. You go out and you do that. I mean, that's that's bad. Uh, what else? Arizona State on a buzzer beater to UC Riverside. Did you see that? It was like three quarters of the way down the court. They lost. That ain't good. It's not good. Um, and then Princeton beat South Carolina, too. I think those are the big ones. And college hoops, baby, it's back. Yeah, hey, the the epitome of brutality. Yes, college hoops, where the uh, extraordinary becomes the ordinary. 
Uh, big outlier last night in football to change the subject. The Rams added some good talent these past couple of weeks. We talked about Von Miller a few weeks ago. Uh, Odell Beckham Jr. now suiting up for the LA Rams. Everyone's like, oh my God, they're going to be incredible. And I still am holding by my opinion that I think they're going to win the Super Bowl. Um, they got beat the crap out of on Sunday night football or Monday night football, Monday night football. by the San Francisco 49ers. And this was one that was not close from the start. A lot of miscues. Uh, Odell's on very limited snaps as they figure out what his role is going to be. So I think this is a major fluke. I think everybody's overreacting. I think the Rams are going to be probably the NFC favorites right now. So we'll, we'll have to check in on that. Yeah, it was a weird week of football. I mean, you know, I don't take a lot of stock into uh interdivision games i think honestly like no matter how good of a team or bad of a team they are when they're facing guys that they play two times a year i think it's a 50 50 it really can go either way um everyone was surprised that they didn't use obj a lot it's like he just got there he's been there for a cup of coffee um they're trying to adapt without robert woods like they're going to be plenty of fine the the wheels are going to turn mcveigh is going to figure something out it's good, but the 49ers, they're not a bad team when healthy and all the wheels are rolling. I mean, we forget that two years ago they were at the Super Bowl, you know, and it's like, yeah, there was a couple different pieces, but they're not a bad team. Um, I think the Rams will be just fine. I mean, we saw that, yeah, the Cardinals on the other end of the spectrum, it's like another, you know, in the division, they've been lights out, but they did not have kyler deandre hopkins and uh i believe chase edmonds and the panthers blanked them so you know they're all still fine the bucks blue one i mean they've lost a couple in a row but it's like we're still early it's midway through the season you know there's going to be a couple fluke games but don't take too much stock into it i think the rams will be just fine yeah i agree it was cool to see cam newton though uh, come back out doing what he did. He found the end zone a couple of times, which I thought was good. Long time coming. If only could do that in the Pats uniform, might be, I'd be a little happier, but whatever. Um, quick check of the NBA too. Somehow the Warriors are red hot again. Without uh, play. Right. Didn't have a great year last year. Now they're 11 and two out of the blue. Uh, I knew this would happen. I'm just going to say it. It's the Warriors. Like they're good every year. And the exception, like they're even good when they're not good. I don't know how to say it. Like Steph is just so fucking good that you like not a single soul should be surprised that they're 11 and two. No. And I knew this was going to happen in a couple, you know, this was years in the making where it's like, okay, they have this historic run, you know, win a couple titles, they lose Kevin Durant. They get a sign and trade with D'Angelo Russell. D'Angelo Russell doesn't fit in the system. They trade him to Minnesota. They get Andrew Wiggins, who's been actually a pretty solid role player for the Warriors, and they get a pick attached to it. The War- I mean, the Timberwolves suck. They get a first rounder. The year that everyone got hurt for the Warriors, they get another first rounder. And now they're rocking with Wiseman and um, who was the other pick that they had this year? That's a damn good I'm question. drawing a blank. But either way, you get two. Oh, um, shit. It was, uh, it was Kuminga, the dude yeah. that I was like, I tweeted it. The second he got drafted, I go, really? We let the Warriors have Kuminga? That's, yeah. that's bad news. So they just got two top five, you know, top five talent picks. Steph Curry comes back healthy. Clay Thompson will be back in a couple of weeks. It's like, 
they are, you know, they're fitting players into the system. Unlike the Lakers, which everyone's like, oh, why aren't the Lakers winning right now? It's like, that's a lot of mouths to feed in. People getting hurt and you have an old team. It's like, it's not going to work right off the bat. Yes, there's a 80 game slate, 80 game season. You know, there's a lot of basketball to play, but the Warriors right now are taking advantage. And when you have a coach like Steve Kerr, it's like, they've, they've been here before. They're going to go on some crazy streak where they only win like, a game every they lose a game every other week and they're gonna be just fine come the playoffs they're not even like the roster is fine but i mean jordan pool and kavon looney are starting this isn't like you know a team full of nine gazillion all-stars now granted it's probably steph if draymond's healthy then great but wiggins has been like fine these past couple of years he's a good role player Right. And that's all he needs to be. He was hyped up as this dude that's going to save basketball and he doesn't need to be doing that right now. And there's still a bunch of talent. So it's a team that's, it's really good. You know, another team that's surprising is the wizards at nine and three. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, don't get I mean, that. it's kind of crazy too. getting all the Lakers scraps. It's like Kyle Kuzma is kind of on a big FU tour. Um, Montreal Harris is obviously good. You know, Bradley Beal, it's his team. He finally is again, that number one option where it's like build a team around him and it'll work. Don't force feed a couple stars into it, which I think, you know, you gotta, everyone's obviously always been like, Oh, we need a big three. We need a big four. We need these big rosters, which I think the mentality is going to be start getting reversed. It's like the bucks last year won, And obviously they still had talent on the roster, but it's like Giannis is your guy, build it around him. You don't need to have three Giannis's. Right, exactly. So that's why the Nets haven't done shit. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the NBA sort of in crisis, but I mean, we'll we'll have to see as the time goes on. Maybe you'll have some of these teams that you know um, start coming out of the woodworks, like the Suns and the Bucks. You know, if that was if that was rivalry that goes on. You know, we get teams like that, then I'm happy for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, all for more competition in the league. That'll do it for our ball segment. What did we forget? Anything on the table? I know I don't have anything. For balls we, or in general? What do we need to recap? What what went down? This well, the, stoves, the stove's getting hot for baseball. Baseball offseason. Um, you know, the Rule 5 draft, I believe, is this week in qualifying offer. Qualifying offer deadlines are when this podcast airs will be passed. So we already saw a big name in Noah, um, Noah Syndergaard heading over to the Angels on a $21 million deal. Kind of fucking crazy for a guy that's pitched two innings in two years. Oh, um, Verlander's about to command some money. Uh, the Yankees might trade for Matt Olson. I don't know, but the baseball stove is hot. We'll have to get some of our, you know, our famous guests in the baseball world back on the show in the coming weeks once things, uh, when the waters are more settled. But other than that, I mean, in the house enterprise world, we got a lot of great content across the board. Obviously, college basketball is big right now. Um, we touched upon the Manscaped stuff for a perfect gift, but we also have plenty of merch from all of our brands. New stuff will be coming in a few days and get the stuff you know, before the holidays. Start putting stuff up. You'll see plenty of discount codes flying throughout the next couple of weeks with Black Friday deals. So you can check out all of our merch at house-enterprise.com and go over to the merch shop again powered by squad locker a lot of great stuff coming your way my sweatshirt big house brewing company logo one of the comfiest i own i will throw it out there uh go get that for yourself 
that will do it from us. That is Will, and I'm Jake. So long, folks. Take it easy. Thank you.